Welcome to First Hamilton CRC Sermon Podcast. My name is Chris Schoon. I serve as the lead pastor here at First Hamilton. We are delighted that you are listening in. We hope and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you as you seek to know and follow Jesus Christ. Yeah, I might not pronounce some of these cities right, but I'll try my best in these passages. I practiced this morning too. The first one is Acts 1, 1 to 5, 6, 16 to 90. And next one is Acts 2, 1 to 13, 1692. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you for such a lovely time day. We are in shelter. We don't have hurricanes that much or hardly anything. And bless Hayden with the word. I should say Pastor Hayden. I have a grandson named Hayden. That's <laughs> And bless everybody in this congregation this week. Amen. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach unto the day he has taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them for over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not do Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Another one is Acts 2, 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house there they were sitting. They saw what happened to the tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When he heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking his own language. Utterly amazed, he asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, um, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Bargeria and Paphilia, Egypt and the other parts of Libya, Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Somehow, some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thanks, Betty, for reading for us. So if this is your uh, first time at, at first, or uh, first time in a little while, um, just so you know, we are in the midst of, or we're concluding today, a series on the Apostles' Creed, um, which has actually, in turn, forced us more to look at the Trinity. You know, what, what is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, as the, the Apostles' Creed um, teaches us? And, and as we're taking a closer look at, at the Trinity, one of the things that um, is, a, is a fear for, for me as a pastor, and I'm sure Chris probably has the same fear, is that as soon as you open the, the can of worms called, called the Trinity, there is always this danger that we, we leave the place more confused than when we arrived. And it's almost inevitable because the Trinity is one of these these divine mysteries that people over the ages have, have had a really hard time to, to, to understand, which is why, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, these, these creeds are written in order to clarify these things. And so if, you, if you've been sitting in the pew for the past few weeks and have been thinking, this makes no sense, I want you to, to walk away from this series, at least with, with this. I ran into this, this quote from uh, Tim Keller this week, and this is my first time using the slides, so we'll see if this works. Oh, there we go. So this, this put the Trinity in, in a way that I think we can take it and treasure it. Keller says this, he says, each person of the Trinity, so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice our word choreography is within it. It means literally to dance or flow around. So have you ever seen synchronized dancing before? Put up your hand. And if you haven't, go on YouTube and look at America's best dance crew for the past 10 years. It's, it's amazing because these, these this group of like a dozen people are moving their bodies in almost the exact same way. And that's what we see in the Trinity. That the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are so in tune with each other, are so in love with each other, that they're moving in the same way. And which is why, as Pastor Chris alluded to in the first week we were talking about this series, that we almost like we can't help talking about each person of the Trinity because they overflow, because they're in such close community with one another. And as we, as we walk away from this series, uh, you know, the, the, the Trinity is something, it's kind of like one of those you know, multiple flavored lollipops that you can suck on for hours and hours and hours and they change flavor. The more you sit with it, the more you wrestle with what, what beauty we find in the being of God himself, the more beautiful it is. And that the flavor will change over time. And it will be different. And it will be awesome. And so just be encouraged that if this doesn't make 
complete sense to you. You're not alone. But that over time, as you sit with it and as you wrestle with it, that it will start to change flavor and that you will see more and more clearly the beauty of God himself. So just wanted to encourage you with that before we take on the last person of the Trinity in, in the, the I Believe series, the Holy Spirit. Is that all? The Holy Spirit? Is that all? <laughs> it seems like such, an, such a huge thing to talk about in, in a sermon, but I'm going to try, try my best to, to do it. So this morning I want to talk about the Holy Spirit under three, three categories or questions. First, what is the Spirit? So what is the Spirit? Second, why do we need the Spirit? And third, how do we receive and experience the Spirit? So what it is, why we need it, how do we receive it, how do we get it? So first, what's the Spirit? The Spirit, as the biblical authors explain, is God's personal presence. Whenever a biblical author talks about the Spirit of God, they, they talk about it as God's, God's personal presence that dwells in us. In this passage in Acts, God's holy presence des descends from heaven and, and dwells on the apostles, alive and active as a person. Now, when we hear the Holy Spirit, we don't often think about as a, as a person. Normally, when, when we think of a person, we think of somebody that has you know, arms and legs and a head or a brain. Or, but when, when the, the Bible talks about a person, they talk about someone, something that can think, that can act, that can make decisions, a being, a person, not necessarily a human being. And so uh, we, we see this in, in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which says that, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is yet another. But that the divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit is one, that their glory is equal and their majesty co-eternal. So in an article that I was reading this week, it pointed out um, that what I said before, that, that a person is something that acts, a person is something that thinks, a person is something that speaks. And so when we look at the scriptures and say, you know, what is this, what is God's presence that, and how is it a person? We see, you know, in this passage in Acts, the Holy Spirit is descending. Right? It is acting. It is coming from heaven and dwelling in the apostles. And not only is it, is it acting, but it's also enabling them. Right? They, the apostles are able to speak in the language of, the, of many different uh, nations and dialects, proclaiming the, the works, the beauty of God like they couldn't before. The Holy Spirit enables them to do something that they couldn't before. We also see it in places like in Acts 8.29 when Philip is, uh, is sent over to the Ethiopian eunuch to, to help explain the scroll of Isaiah that this eunuch is reading. We, the, the Spirit is, is sent to be the one that tells Philip to go to the chariot. We also see the Spirit making decisions. In Acts 15, where, where the apostles are, are writing a letter to the Gentile believers. This is just after the Jerusalem council. 
And, and the apostles are writing a letter, and, they, and they, they point to the Holy Spirit. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to tell us, to tell you, not to burden yourselves with anything above the requirements, and then they go on to describe what it is. But they describe the Holy Spirit as the thing that told them, made a decision for them. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit is not just some, some force that's floating around in our universe. The Holy Spirit is, is, is a person, a being that, that can think, can act, can enable. It's alive. But secondly, where does this spirit come from? Does it come into existence when, the, when, when you know, we read in Acts 2, when God sends the Holy Spirit from heaven? Is that when, when the Holy Spirit becomes a thing? No. Just as we discovered last week when we we're talking about the Word of God, the Logos that existed in the beginning, we also see the same thing about the Spirit. In the creation of the world, in the first few verses of Genesis, it says that the, the, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And in the first few verses of Genesis, we see that the, the, the author of Genesis describes the, the ruach, the spirit of God, hovering over the waters. It's there in the beginning. The spirit, God's, God's personal presence is alive and active, hovering in the beginning. It's rooted in the creation of the world. But more than that, the Spirit isn't just around when the creation of the world takes place. But the Spirit is actually the thing that gives us, as human beings, life. The Nicene Creed says, says and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. So it describes the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Why does it talk about the Holy Spirit as the giver of life? Because when Genesis is describing the creation of the world and, and God creating human beings, it, the, the author uses that same Hebrew word for the Spirit hovering over the waters to describe how God breathes into human beings the breath of life. Just as God's presence was hovering over the waters, God also infused Adam and Eve, human beings, with his personal presence, his breath. And he did this for a reason. He did this so that we could be empowered as human beings to do what God created us to do, to, to tend the earth, to, to be God's workmanship, who, who go forth and take care of the world. God gave us his spirit his breath to enable us to do that. God, in other words, created us to be inflatable people. But the story of the Bible tells us that there is a little bit of a plot twist. That God created us to be inflated by his personal presence. But that human beings, we, we, we took that gift of life that God gave to us, his personal presence in us, and we turned away from him. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden, 
You know, they, they drove a wedge in between in their relationship with God. And when, when God is, is actually showing his grace by not destroying human beings, but by casting them out of his presence and out of the garden, he uses, he uses a word that he says, he says that, um, this, that God divorced human beings from his presence, that he separated himself from us. Since human beings sinned against God, it has been, there's been this, there's this wedge that, that has been between us and God's presence. And we see this in the Old Testament as, you know, the, the, the temple is set up and there's a, there's a curtain, a heavy, heavy curtain that separates human beings from God's presence. And by his grace, he gave us certain ways that, that human beings were able to, to be with God, to cleanse themselves, to offer sacrifices. But there was always this, this weight, this, this wedge, this, this curtain that separated. Have you ever split wood before? Then you know what a wedge is, right? When you, when you, when you drive the axe into the wood, you, you try to keep the, the big log that you're they're trying to separate, you're trying to keep it apart, and so you put a wedge in, and you hammer it in so that it keeps it apart. And that wedge is stuck, right? You can't, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's stuck for good. Sometimes it takes months for you to, to take to muster up the courage to, to use all your energy to get it out. We try our best to remove this wedge. But when it comes to the wedge between God's personal presence and ourselves, it's not something we can, we can take out on our own. You know, we can try we can try. We can try by doing, you know, good things, trying to live a moral life, trying to earn God's presence in our lives. But we can never do enough to make that happen. You know, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Christianity doesn't say that we can work hard to earn God's presence in our lives. Every other religion says this is what you have to do. This is what you, you know, you have to follow these steps to enlightenment. You have to do these things and then God will be happy with you. You know, Christianity does not try to explain away the wedge that has created a separation between us and God's presence, God's spirit. Because we are helpless people. We have been deflated. And I know some of us are feeling helpless this morning looking for, for hope, looking for, for something to change, something to help get out of the rut that you're in. And the good news of the, the Bible is that it doesn't try to explain this away. It doesn't try to, to, to give us an easy way out. And as we talked about last week, the way that the Bible makes, gets rid of this wedge is by God writing himself into the story. See, in John chapter 1, it says that the word was made flesh to dwell among us. And Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God's, God's son, took on humanity, lived as a human being, 
and lived full of God's Spirit. You know, we know this because when, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized by John, and then the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and dwelt in him, empowered him to be on mission, to be the only truly inflated person in this world. And guess where this mission led him to? It led him to the cross. And on the cross, where Jesus Christ, God's Son, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, he cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? And the next line, it says, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the only truly inflated human being, let himself be deflated. To have the wedge of God's judgment fall on himself. And it wasn't because he deserved it. It wasn't because he had turned away from God. It was, it was because he loved us. Because the cross of Jesus Christ says to us, you deserve to be where I am. You deserve to be banished from God's presence. You deserve to be deflated people forever. But I won't let that happen to you. My love is too great for you. And so I'm taking your place. I'm letting myself be deflated and not you. I'm giving up my spirit so you can be completely filled but not just filled, so that you can overflow with life. Do you see what this means for us? That Jesus Christ says he's done what it takes. He's destroyed the wedge between ourselves and God's personal presence so that we are able to be empowered again by the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus, by dying on the cross, has enabled us to be filled, to open the floodgates of God's presence in our lives. And we see this Holy Spirit come and dwell on the apostles instantly. When they were filled, they were enabled to do something they were never able to do before, speak in languages that they couldn't before to be on mission again, to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Have you ever gone golfing before and driven a golf cart? When, when I, before I was 16 years old and had the thrill of driving a car, a golf cart was pretty much the closest thing that I got. And so whenever I'd go golfing with my dad, it was always more fun to drive the golf cart than actually golf. Which probably made him wonder why he didn't just rent a golf cart instead of paying for 18 holes. <laughs> but I can distinctly remember that, that when, when driving this, this golf cart, you, know, you, you put the pedal to the metal, and then it zooms up to speed, and then there's this extremely disappointing moment where the governor plate kicks in, and the cart slows down, and you know that that there's more, in, there's more power there that you're not able to use. Not, you're not, you don't have the ability to make this cart go top speed. What the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives is taking the governor plate off. 
When God sends his spirit to dwell in us, we, we become empowered people. We become different people, filled with God's presence, enabled to be on mission like never before. He gives us life. He strengthens us. He encourages us. We've been given this in what, what Tim Keller calls our best friend. You know, a friend that has teeth. If you have a friend, you know that, that this, you want a friend that's not going to just agree with everything that you say, that agree with everything that you, you, you want to do or that you believe, right? Because then you're just, you're a friend with a version of yourself. What you want in a best friend is somebody who's going to know you, who's going to challenge you, who's going to convict you, and who's going to make you into a different person who will show you where you're wrong, but then help you to change. This is what we receive in the Holy Spirit. Someone who will never leave our side. How do we know this? Because when Jesus was in the grave, the Holy Spirit didn't leave him. He raised him from the dead. God's personal presence raised Jesus to life again and glorified him. And he ascended into heaven. This means for us that if we're in Jesus Christ, we'll never be alone again. That God is with us. His presence is with us forever. So how do we receive this spirit in our lives? This best friend. This thing that empowers us to be a different person. That gets us on mission like never before. First thing is we have to respond. When Jesus is talking in John 7, he's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the people don't get it, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit and he says that whoever believes in him will have rivers of living water running inside of them. Rivers of living water. And the, the, the gospel writer John makes a note in there that, so that we know that, the, that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here. Living water, making us alive again. What do we have to do? Believe. Believe in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. It's the first thing. You have to respond. Respond to the Holy Spirit and believe in Jesus. You may be sitting here feeling this nudge. Maybe you haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Maybe, maybe you, you've... You have, but you feel the Holy Spirit working in you in new ways, and, and you, you want to talk to somebody about it. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Chris, or, or use the, the prayer room after the service. There's, there's going to be uh, people there who can pray with you, who can talk to you about what it, what it means to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Because that's the first thing that we have to do to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is to believe in Jesus. But not only that, but we have to, as the catechism says, we have to pray. So I love um, what the catechism talks about in question and answer 115. This is the part of the catechism where uh, it's just finished the teaching on the Ten Commandments. And uh, the catechism is it's saying basically, well, if we, can't, if we can't live up to the Ten Commandments, why do we preach them? And the, the answer, it says, uh, so that we may 
so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for our forgiveness of sins and righteousness. But then secondly, and this is what I want to point out here this morning, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life when we reach our goal, perfection. So that we may never stop striving, never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. In the next, I think it's the next question and answer, it goes on to be, you know, why do we pray? And then it says that, that for two reasons. One, because prayer is the way we're thankful to God for the grace that he's received. We, he's given us the ability to pray. But then secondly, because God gives his spirit to those who pray. You see it in these two question and answers that, that teach us so clearly how important it is to be prayerful, asking God to send his spirit to dwell in us. One of the core values at First Hamilton is steadfast prayer. And I know I'm new here, but I know how important and how um, behind the scenes that core value can be. It's so easy to forget about it. You know, active discipleship, generous stewardship. There, there's more out in the open core values that are, that are a part of what we've committed ourselves to. But prayer is not only the most important part of our thankfulness, but it's how God sends his spirit to dwell in us. He sends his spirit to those who pray for him. And if we're going to do anything in this city, if we're going to change in any way, it's only because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I want to conclude with a quote from Pope Francis that struck me this week as I was reflecting on the Holy Spirit. And he says this, to put it simply, the Holy Spirit bothers us because he moves us. He makes us walk. He pushes the church to go forward. And we are like Peter at the transfiguration. Ah, how wonderful it is to be here like this, all together, worshiping God in this place. But don't bother us. We want the Holy Spirit to doze off. We want to domesticate the Holy Spirit, and that's no good, because he is God. He is the wind which comes and goes, and you don't know where. He is the power of God. He is the one who gives us consolation and strength to move forward, but to move forward. And this bothers us. It's so much nicer to be comfortable. The question I want to leave you with is this. What, what would it look like if we were a church that liked to be bothered? You know, we have been given in the Holy Spirit a faithful friend who has promised one thing, that he will never leave us. He will bother us, but he'll never leave us. He'll make us uncomfortable, but he'll never leave us. He'll challenge us to the very core, but he'll never leave us. 
He promises to take us, to shape us, to hold us, to guide us until the ultimate goal of God's is accomplished, our perfection. And he'll never leave us. What would it look like if we were a church that liked to be bothered by this friend? Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this gift that we receive in, through, through Jesus who, who made a way for us to be, to have your presence in us. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to, to dwell in each one of us in new and fresh ways this week, that, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would hold us, that you would comfort us. Lord, we pray that you would bother us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.